The Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us today. Before we get to the regular work of the committee, I want to take a moment uh, to recognize an important day in history. Uh, it is a day that uh, we are blessed to have Senator Risch uh, in our lives. It's his birthday. So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jim. Happy birthday to you. And many more. Happy birthday, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Ranking Member. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm honored you would uh, take time to do this. Uh, you know, when you get to this many, it's kind of like every other day, you know. But uh, I'm blessed. Uh, my... Uh, my, my successor governor has the same birthday I do, and uh, he, uh, however, he was much older than I am. He was born in 1942, and he says, happy birthday, my friend. 80 really doesn't feel that bad, and I said, uh, uh, I'll keep that in mind when and if I get there. Seriously, looking back, neither one of us have, can complain about the hand we were dealt, and he says, God's got a crush on us. both of us. We're blessed, and I said, amen, and that's exactly where I am. Thank you, Mr. Thank you Thank very you, much. Happy birthday. Many more healthy and happy ones. Uh, it's uh, refreshing to have the department's engagement on partnership as we look forward uh, towards putting together this year's State Department authorization bill. Uh, as you know, last December, Congress passed the first state authorization bill in nearly two decades. It was not an easy task. And I want to commend the ranking member and his staff for partnering in that process. It was a truly bipartisan accomplishment, supported by nearly every member on the committee, and I look forward to replicating that this year. The American people and our nation's foreign policy benefit when we can work together. As we have discussed before, when Secretary Blinken, you, and other senior officials took your positions last year, you inherited a damaged, neglected, and underfunded department. Morale was low, the expertise needed for successful, effective diplomacy was leaving, the pipeline of new Foreign Service officers was languishing, critical bureaus had been gutted. Our ability to promote and protect our interests and our values had been decimated. As recent world events have reminded us, we need our diplomats and development professionals on the ground to advance our national interests, to counter Russia and China, to support threatened democracies, and to strengthen alliances. These are not abstract priorities, they matter. When we have a strong presence in place, the United States and the world is better for it. So I very much appreciate the efforts now underway to address years of underinvestment, restoring and rebuilding critical bureaus, creating new offices like the Cyber Bureau. I want to commend the incredible public servants uh, bringing the department up to date uh, to face the challenges of the 21st century, even during the drying times of a global pandemic. In particular, I want to applaud the department's push to modernize and increase diversity, something I have long advocated for. From the shores of Alaska and New Jersey to the ranches of Idaho and the border towns of Detroit, we must draw on America's extraordinary range of backgrounds and perspectives to advance our nation's interests abroad. Naming the first ever Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer was a good start. All Americans should have the opportunity to serve and represent our country on the global stage. A disability should not be an obstacle in accessing or working at our embassies. 
Adding as many as 200 paid internships beginning this fall semester is another positive step that will remove barriers for students who might not be able to afford working in an unpaid position. I also support the department's forward-looking equity plans, including the announcement of a special representatives focused on racial equity. I support consular affairs officers offering passports with inclusive gender markers. And I support diplomats engaging with underrepresented communities worldwide. It is also vital that the department uh, modernize its recruitment process to attract a talented top-notch workforce. So it's heartening that after years in which applications were declining, now, under your leadership, the department is now on pace for the largest annual hiring of foreign service officers in a decade. But it's not enough to simply recruit an incredible workforce. We must also retain it with professional training, expanded incentives, and modernizing the promotion process. So today I hope to hear from you on what additional authorities or resources you think the department needs to continue these rebuilding and modernization efforts. I can't promise we will deliver on all your asks. There may be some for which we have different views, but I know that the ranking member and I and all members of this committee are committed to working with you in a constructive manner as we put together and pass into law this year's State Department authorization bill. Let me close by saying the Department of State has come a long way from its humble beginnings when Thomas Jefferson had a staff of six and only two diplomatic posts. And when the Department of State lives up to its aspirations and the aspirations of the American people, it sets the standard other U.S. government agencies and departments must strive to meet as well. This is a time for action to make sure that the Department of State is aiming for excellence. The administration has been in office for over a year now. The clock is ticking. We can't wait any longer. Congress and this committee are standing by to work with you as a constructive partner. We want to see results. The American people want results. And I believe the future of United States foreign policy depends on it. As Russia's unprovoked war rages in Ukraine and the administration is requesting billions of dollars more in assistance, which I uh, support, but I also look forward to hearing some of the details about our plan going forward, including plans to reopen our diplomatic post there. With that, let me turn to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Richard's opening statement. <clears throat> well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Deputy Secretary McEwen, for being here today. Uh, like the chairman, I'm proud of this committee's work to see the first successful reauthorization of the State Department in, in nearly two decades past uh, last uh, December after uh, years uh, of work. I think everyone's to be congratulated uh, who worked on this and pushed it forward, but I think it would be unfair not to uh, recognize clearly uh, the leadership uh, of the chairman of this committee in making this happen. So congratulations especially to you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, while uh, the reauthorization was a success, the bill demonstrated the enormous amount of work to be done at the State Department in terms of management and operations. That's probably uh, one of the most significant uh, accomplishments of the bill is to underscore these matters. The department and this committee must examine the needs of the 21st century diplomacy and move the State Department forward to advance our national interest while being effective stewards of taxpayer dollars. Before I get into that, uh, I want to note that it is imperative uh, for the State Department to reopen our embassy in Kiev to better support Ukraine and send a strong message that the U.S. government stands with uh, the uh, Ukrainian people. I'm equally concerned uh, with the status of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow 
As the Russian government squeezes out U.S. diplomats, those who remain have gone above and beyond to keep the embassy up and running. They need our help. I look forward to hearing what you're doing to better support uh, U.S. personnel in Moscow, realizing that this is an open setting, and we can't talk about all the details of that. When it comes to 21st century diplomacy, we must start with the basics, getting our uh, diplomats outside of embassy walls and meeting with local populations, just like diplomats used to do. We need a State Department that is firing on all cylinders in order to compete with Chinese, Russian, and Iranian adversaries who don't have the restrictions our diplomats do. To begin addressing this issue, I have a bill recently passed out of committee that updates how state investigates security incidents abroad in order to rebalance the State Department's risk calculus. I would appreciate your thoughts on that legislation. I'm also currently working on an update of security requirements for our embassies that make it easier for our diplomats to access local populations while also saving the U.S. taxpayers millions of dollars. While we make it easier for our diplomats to get out and about, we must make sure we are doing our best to protect them. Uh, anomalous health incidents, or Havana syndrome as it's known, still needs to be addressed and quickly. Who's attacking our personnel? How do we keep them safe? How is the department ensuring those officers who have uh, sustained long-term injuries are provided for? And how are we harmonizing care and access to treatment with interagency partners? Other departments are taking this issue very seriously. I would appreciate you addressing these questions. The State Department needs uh, to do this. Also, U.S. diplomats in China are spending time in fever prisons. The treatment of our personnel is deeply disturbing, and I want to know what State is doing about that. While the State Department is generally focused outward on foreign audiences, the Department also provides services directly to the American public. At the top of this list is passports. The huge backlog that accumulated because of COVID has made getting a passport take longer than it has in decades. This is an essential government service and one that needs to function efficiently. Without passports, U.S. citizens can't travel the world to promote American business. And without visa services, foreigners can't come to America and spend money. Uh, the idle economy, and indeed the economy of all states, benefits enormously from tourism and for foreign seasonal workers, and we need passport and visa systems functioning in order to continue benefiting. I hope you can provide us with an update on the department's efforts to achieve that. The enacted State Department authorization requires that starting in January, most special envoys will have to come before this committee. I look forward to this new process of greater congressional scrutiny of senior officials who are handling uh, substantive and sensitive portfolios. After 18 years without an authorizing bill, the department has a lot of catching up to do. Last year's bill was a good start, and I look forward to continuing our work to get the department into shape to address 21st century threats. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Mr. Secretary, the floor is yours. Your full statement will be included in the record. We'd ask you to try to summarize it in five minutes or so so we can have a discussion with you. And uh, please, go ahead. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Risch, Senator Coons. Nice to see you all. Thanks for having me here today. Um, Mr. Chairman, I think you have a future in, in singing. Uh, your voice is actually quite good. So. Uh, I, I welcome the opportunity to be here to talk uh, about the issues that you have set forth, including engaging on State Department authorization, and we very much appreciate the committee's work on that legislation last year. Let me begin by expressing our appreciation for your continued support for equipping us to lead globally on behalf of the American people. We are especially grateful for the supplemental resources and flex flexible authorities you have provided in response to Moscow's 
brutal war against Ukraine and for the supplemental funds for Afghanistan last year. This partnership between the administration and Congress has been essential to a strong, united American leadership. When I came before this committee last October, it was the day the Secretary announced his vision for modernizing American diplomacy, an agenda that will shape the Department to meet the challenges of the 21st century by delivering an even stronger, more effective, more diverse, and more agile institution to lead America's engagement in the world. While the modernization agenda includes a range of cross-cutting actions aimed at ensuring the Department can effectively execute our American foreign policy for the next generation, the Secretary has identified three key priority initiatives. First, we'll build the Department's capacity and expertise to address 21st century missions. We want to ensure that the Department is organized, resourced, and equipped with the skills and abilities to effectively develop and execute foreign policy in the areas of China, climate, health security, cyberspace and emerging technologies, multilateral diplomacy, and economic tradecraft. Launching the new Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy last month was an important step in advancing this goal. We are also in the final stages of reviewing how we are organized for global health security in consultation with this committee and other stakeholders. Our modernization approach includes using new tools such as AI and integrating data analytics to inform policy decisions. Data scientists want to come work at the State Department, believe it or not. We just had a job announcement for 50 positions, and we, we closed it after a few days because we got 400 applications. Second, we are working to modernize training and professional development. We look to embrace a culture of learning where employees are offered and expected to engage in a wide range of opportunities to acquire new skills, expand their experiences, and grow throughout their careers. This entails expanding courses in emerging fields such as cyber, tech, STEM, health, climate expertise, and increasing accessibility, incentives, and accountability for employees to train and develop. With your help, we will expand our foreign service training and development float and establish the civil service equivalent. This was an objective first set out by Secretary Powell two decades ago, and we are making every effort to try to realize it with your help. The third initiative is to inst institutionalize a hybrid workforce. We will ensure that the department's workforce transitions to a mission-first hybrid work environment that is resilient, agile, secure, and inclusive. As I noted, the launch of the Cyberspace Bureau is one example of how we are establishing new capabilities to address emerging challenges. There are many others. Thanks to your support, as the chairman mentioned, we will expand our paid internships, starting with a group of 200 this fall, and plan to make all internships paid in 2023. About 1,200 people will be paid when interning with us. This should be a game changer to diversify our recruitment pool. We have updated performance management processes for both the foreign and civil service, which includes manager accountability and integration of DEIA principles. We've established an employee retention unit to develop the first department-wide retention strategy to understand why people are leaving, but also to understand why people are staying. We established a 500-person volunteer recruiter corps with representation from all of our department's affinity groups. We've offered foreign service specialist oral assessments virtually. We also conducted a review of the foreign service exam, and as you may have seen, we recently announced it will expand the focus on a candidate's education and experience, and will end the practice whereby the written exam is the sole gateway to the rest of the process. With regard to assignment restrictions, we've lifted now nearly 70% of those and we'll soon finalize the revised appeals process for officers who have restrictions sustained against them. 
Many of these achievements were only possible with your support and, and the support of uh, the Appropriations Committee. So we thank Senator Coons, who chairs the subcommittee. We will continue to rely on your advice and partnership to make further progress. And this includes ensuring that we have the resources and authorities to take care of our people and fulfill our mission. Lastly, I wanna thank uh, the committee for work on confirming our nominees. I know we have a lot of them. We've moved about 100 through the process in the last year, uh, many by bipartisan votes. Uh, but we still have a number of nominees pending, and we, it's critical to have our team on the field, particularly as we respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we appreciate, Mr. Chairman, your prompt action to schedule a hearing for Ambassador Brink, uh, which I understand is next week. But we ask for your continued support for the many nominations that we have pending, and I suspect we'll be sending you more over the coming weeks. So with that, I'll stop and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. We're, we're fully engaged in trying to pursue uh, hearings and markups for all of the, um, the nominees. Uh, so we'll start a round of uh, questions. Uh, let me start off with Secretary Blinken has noted that the State Department is returning diplomats to Ukraine and beginning the process of resuming operations at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. And we are looking forward to the uh, nominees hearing. How does the State Department intend to weigh the imperatives of establishing a physical diplomatic presence in Kiev and mitigating risks to the safety and security of U.S. personnel assigned there? So, Mr. Chairman, as you know, our diplomats assigned Embassy Kiev have been working out of Poland for the last couple of months. We've started day trips back into Western Poland, into Lviv. Uh, Christina Kavin, the Charge d'Affaires, was there yesterday for several hours. And we're planning to try to get back into Kiev in the near future. Our security professionals will have to go in and do an assessment of our facilities and make a judgment about how uh, we can mitigate risk. Obviously, the Russians can, even though they're not on the ground threatening Kyiv, they can still range the whole country with missiles and aircraft, as we saw last week. So we'll have to take that into account. But we, the Secretary's determined to get us back into Kyiv in the near future. And I understand Undersecretary Bass is coming up to do a closed briefing for Senator Cardin's subcommittee this afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, let me turn to the question of uh, diversity. I've long championed since my days in the House a diverse workforce at the department, which is why I commended last year's support, uh, appointment of the uh, department's first chief diversity and inclusion officer, Ambassador Abercrombie Winstonley. I understand that the department's diversity and inclusion strategic plan, as required by Executive Order 14035, was completed in March. It still hasn't been released. Given that the plan is critical for executing the chief diversity officer's work, including communicating new policies and procedures to state's global workforce. When will the plan be released? And what steps are being taken to ensure that everyone in the department will be held accountable for the goals of the plan? Mr. Chairman, the, <clears throat> we released internally a preliminary draft of the plan back in the fall and invited comments from across the workforce. And around that same time, uh, the OMB or OPM, I forget which agency, issued executive branch-wide guidance on what they wanted to see in these plans. So we had to take a look at that and update uh, the draft plan to conform with that. And all, all the agency plans are sitting over the White House being reviewed. So we're, we're waiting on their action to release it. So do we have any projected time frame? I don't know the latest. I'll check on it when I get back I to the department. appreciate knowing that. I can get back to you. Within this context, how are uh, 
individuals within the department, particularly those in leadership positions, going to be held accountable for the goals. We, it's great. It starts off with the top. I tell this to the business roundtable, the same for the government. When leadership at the top makes it a priority, people understand it is. Uh, then it ultimately, the, the diversity officer is a great uh, action forward. But then there has to be accountability, right? Because otherwise it makes no consequence. People have to know that this is part of their evaluation, for example. So any sense about that that you can share with us? I'd say a couple of things. The secretary has made it clear that this is everyone's job. It's not merely the job of the senior leadership. When I meet with ambassadors who've been confirmed and are about to go out to post, which I, I try to meet with all of them, I tick through a list of issues that are priority for the secretary that they need to pay attention to, and this is one of them. As I mentioned, we have updated the, uh, our promotion rules or standards. So in the Foreign Service, they're the, called the promotion precepts. And we've issued updated precepts, uh, which includes a specific precept on what they have done in, on DEIA. We have a department-wide DEIA council, which the secretary attends those meetings uh, when, we're, when he's in town. And when we have these meetings, we usually have a couple of bureaus present on best practices that they've been undertaking to advance uh, these objectives. So it's, this is a mission, -wide, mission for everyone in the department. And we've got to make sure that everyone understands that. What we've heard uh, anecdotally is that the workforce understands this is a priority from senior leadership. They're not always hearing it further down. So we, we have some work to do to make sure that middle managers understand this as part of their job description. Oh, I look forward to that happening. Finally, on April 26 of this year, the State Department announced it would cease using the written Foreign Service Officer test as a pass-fail gateway test and instead consider each candidate's performance on the test among several factors in the application process. This is one of those things that I've always said has been an impediment uh, to people. It's uh, very subjective uh, that you can't orally communicate. What impact is this expected to have on attracting the broader American population to work at the department? And what has been the response to this news? So as you said, Mr. Chairman, we will continue to uh, have the written test, uh, but it will not be the gateway to the rest of the process. Someone will take the test and then they submit, they also submit a personal narrative statement. And then we have a, what we call a qualification evaluations panel that will look at the officer and uh, the the aspiring officer in toto looking at all of their background and qualifications and what they've uh, what their skill sets may be and then they would go on to the oral test if they made it that far through this process we think um, and some of the data show that this uh, may increase the diversity of our of our entry classes some people don't take tests well some people have the resources to take um, courses to help them pass the written test so we want to make sure that we're not screening out qualified officers by just the written test. I, for my part, I failed the Foreign Service exam in the 1980s. I, I came out okay. So not everybody can pass the test. All right. Well, that's, that's, um, uh, that, that's an interesting tidbit uh, that uh, Make a note you, can, of that. you can become the, <laughs> the, one of the chief uh, secretaries of the department in that way. All right. Senator Rischel. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, did, I missed it if you did. Did you give us any timetable for when uh, you might be looking at trying to get back into Kiev or particularly starting the process? 
We're, we're starting the process to look at it now, Senator. I'd like, and the Secretary would like us to get in there this month. That's a good goal, at least. Uh, what uh, I, I spoke briefly about the, the issue in Beijing with our, our people there and being in what they call the fever prisons there. What, what, what can you tell us about that? So, Mr. Chairman, I'm pretty sure we have not allowed any officers to go into the so-called fever hospitals. When officers come in uh, from outside the United States, they have to quarantine, and there are quarantine hotels, I believe, but I'll, let me double-check that fact. But we have objected to the possibility that uh, people who are already stationed in China, if they test positive, going into a fever hospital. There was a, a threat at one point a few months ago where uh, an officer might be separated from their child because the child tested positive. So we, we have made that clear to the, to the government of the People's Republic that that is not acceptable to us. We're now on uh, ordered departure status in Shanghai because of the lockdown. A number of officers were having challenges uh, with that, so we've skinned down substantially because of that. And it's something Ambassador Burns is watching very closely. Uh, I know Sec Undersecretary Bass just talked to him about it last night because you can see the reports of Beijing uh, where they're imposing more testing requirements right now. Um, I, I have been informed that, uh, that there have been U.S. personnel that have been forced into uh, fever hospitals. You, you might want to check on that. Uh, and if that's the case, it probably ought to be revisited uh, what's happening. So that's the information I have. If, if years That was not my information, Senator, but I'll double check. I hope you'll check on that for me. I would appreciate that. Um, one of the issues that uh, it's been reoccurring with me for some time is getting I, – I, I understand there's a, a level of, uh, of risk always uh, in everything that's done. Uh, obviously, you want to reduce the risk as much as possible, but reducing it has really uh, impeded our people from getting out m more than what I think that they should. And I've been complaining about this for some time. Uh, is there any thought at all about revisiting the policies in that regard? Yeah, thank you, Senator, and thank you for your work on the Accountability Review Board process. It's definitely something we were working on, and Under Secretary Bass, before he was confirmed in a temporary assignment where he looked at this very issue with a retired diplomatic security officer. And so I'd say a couple of things about it. One, we have in statute some security standards that were put in place. Uh, I confess I worked on them in the late 90s after the East Africa bombing that imposed pretty rigid standards for our facilities in terms of what we need from setback from the street and the size of the walls around the, the complex, et cetera. We think we can relook at some of that because of the advancements in technology where you can maybe, maybe don't need as much setback. We have tried to encourage people, and we've, we've put out risk principles that had been looked at last fall, and we, we re, excuse me, in the fall of 2020 by the last team, and we revalidated them, and I sent out a workforce message calling everyone's attention to it. And what we're trying to do is make people uh, risk-aware and not risk-averse, because this is a risky business that we're in. It's not to say people should be gambling with, their, with people's lives, but they should take smart risks. That's a cultural change that we're going to have to keep working on, but we're with you. We completely agree with what you said, said previously. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm not complaining at all about the... Uh, 
review of the thickness of the wall, setbacks, and that sort of thing. I, I think that's that's uh, a job for somebody who's uh, who has clear expertise in that area. What I'm talking about more is the restrictions on movement uh, of personnel. Uh, and uh, it, it, I can tell you that out there amongst the community, uh, the uh, belief is that we're under the most restrictive uh, regulations and constraints that there are uh, for uh, diplomats from various countries. And uh, I, I know there's a lot of people that feel they could do better if they could have less restriction in that regard. Obviously, risk adversity is something that, uh, that we're all concerned with. But on the other hand, there's also a job that's got to be done. So I appreciate your uh, thoughts. Uh, yeah, I completely agree, Senator Risch. Uh, obviously, the accountability review board process is one of the things hanging over people's heads as they calculate risk and um, other investigations that have occurred in the past tend to make people a little more risk-averse. So we appreciate your encouraging us in this respect. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, happy birthday uh, to Ranking Member Risch. And uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for once again gracing us uh, with your uh, musical talents. You literally have the nicest voice in the entire Senate. And that you used it today to celebrate the ranking member was one of those Senator, rare moments. Of Senator Coons, I like to eat, so I'm not giving up my day job. No. <laughs> Um, but it, it bears repeating um, that your strong bipartisan work to achieve um, the first time in, uh, I think, two decades, uh, reauthorization of the State Department um, is well worth celebrating. And I want you to hear my appreciation for uh, how hard you and your staff have worked. Uh, I hope to contribute to it uh, in a few small ways that I'd like to, to review, if I could, with you briefly, uh, Mr. Deputy Secretary. Um, first, um, I introduced a bill... Um, with Senator Graham back in December called the Democracy in the 21st Century Act. Um, it recognizes that in the digital age, we may need to modernize some of the tools that we fund for defending democracy. It would establish uh, funds with flexible terms and resources for confronting emerging challenges to democracy um, through the State Department, USAID, and the National Endowment for Democracy with a particular focus on um, election integrity emerging technologies and combating kleptocracy. Do you think it'd be helpful for this committee to take up and pass that legislation in advance of the president's um, summit for democracy at the end of this year? Well, without having read it, Senator Coons, I hesitate to give you a full-throated endorsement, but we welcome uh, the conversation and we certainly welcome flexible funds. Uh, it's been 40 years since the National Endowment for Democracy and the institutes were established. They've done a lot of good, but it's certainly worth a conversation to see what other tools we could use. Well, this is a piece of legislation I reviewed with both uh, Secretary Albright uh, of blessed memory and um, Senator Sullivan, um, who's had a leadership role in the IRI. I hope you will consider it um, and give us some prompt feedback. I think it is well worth taking up and passing. Um, in 1948, um, Congress passed the Smith-Munt Act, um, and it's my understanding that this outdated uh, Cold War era law, uh, along with some of its subsequent amendments, um, has at times had a chilling effect on the extent to which our career diplomats feel comfortable or feel empowered to share uh, domestically information about the importance of foreign policy. Foreign policy certainly impacts the American people from public health in a global pandemic to trade issues to national security issues. Um, is state exploring any efforts uh, to help ensure that our diplomats are uh, fully engaging with both foreign and domestic audiences 
Um, and do you think making some modernization revisions to this Cold War era statute that um, restrains some domestic public diplomacy efforts is worth undertaking? Well, Senator, the complexity of this, uh, the Smith-Munt reforms became enhanced when USA was merged into the State Department in the late 1990s. Right. We have the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, and we, the Public Affairs Bureau certainly has a mandate to talk to the American people and explain what we are doing, but we've always been guided by the Smith-Munt restriction and not using public diplomacy program dollars, which are aimed at influencing foreign audiences to uh, communicate with the American people. In the age of the Internet, it's more challenging, obviously, than it was when Smith-Munt was written or even in the late 1990s when the Internet, internet was not uh, so common. So we certainly encourage uh, engagement with domestic audiences, not just by the public affairs um, professionals, but by senior leaders. But I'm happy to uh, take a look at what you're proposing. I am, frankly, just trying to clear out what I think is some outdated underbrush um, that at least from encounters with mid-level foreign service officers, they have understood to restrain them. Um, as the chairman mentioned, um, diversity is a critical and important goal. Um, I've had some folks recently connecting with our HBCU about internship opportunities now that there are paid internship opportunities um, at the State Department, and I just I think we can and should do more to incur actively encourage uh, effective outreach domestically. Um, last, if I could, um, I worked hard to try and um, remove um, the barrier to our rejoining UNESCO to get a UNESCO waiver uh, in uh, the SFOPS bill this past year. Um, my view is that we are ceding leadership at the United Nations through a number of different bodies uh, to China. Um, the Israeli government um, supports our returning to UNESCO under certain conditions. Um, is this something that you think would be an important part of our re-engaging effectively with the UN community? Uh, we do, Senator, and we support rejoining UNESCO for the reasons you stated. Uh, UNESCO is doing some work on standard setting, not on just in education, but on things like AI. And if we're not there, the Chinese are going to be filling the vacuum. So that's why we support rejoining. Uh, if I could, on the diversity issue and recruiting, as you may know, we have what we call diplomats and residents, regionally focused um, recruiters around the country. And I believe uh, seven of them are either at HBCUs or Hispanic serving institutions. Uh, I was just down at Florida International in late March, which is the largest Hispanic-serving institution in the country, to do an event. And the secretary recently did an event at Howard University. So we, we want to do more of these, but we're certainly get, trying to get out there. Mr. Chairman, if I could clean up my answer to Senator Risch on the fever hospital, I had a misunderstanding. So sure. as I said, nobody who's currently stationed in China has gone into a fever hospital if they've tested positive, but they have gone into them if, if they tested positive when they come from overseas. So my mistake, Senator. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. I look forward to working with you on this bill. Thank, thank you. And let me thank Senator Kunzu as the chair of the Foreign Ops Subcommittee on Appropriations has worked with us uh, on issues to maximize the department's, uh, to the department's benefit. Also appreciate that things that are within the authorization element, uh, we've worked together to try to preserve the authorization versus the appropriating part. So I just want to recognize that and I appreciate it. Uh, I understand Senator Portman. Senator Portman is with us virtually. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I uh, appreciate you having this hearing. I understand uh, uh, 
Mr. Deputy Secretary, that the State Department is returning diplomats to Ukraine. Can you tell us when that's going to happen and specifically when are they going back to the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv? Uh, as you know, 17 other countries have already announced returns and most have personnel in place already, uh, including the EU, including France. Uh, and I wondered what our timing is. Yes, Senator, we've, we've already returned to Western Ukraine uh, with our diplomats uh, assigned Embassy Kyiv have gone into Lviv a couple of times on day trips, including most recently yesterday. We're doing the security assessment about returning to Kyiv and we're hoping to get back there in the very near future. Are you concerned that we're moving too slow and losing a leadership position um, amongst other countries? Again, 17 countries have already announced returns. Many are already uh, in Kyiv. I know it's uh, it's a dangerous environment, um, but what uh, what's, what what is your view on our um, relatively slow return to Kyiv and the impact it's having on the on the impression of the United States leadership? Well, I. I don't think it's having uh, a negative effect on our engagement with the government in Kyiv, even when uh, the war started and for the last two months our diplomats based in Poland were in regular communications with Ukrainian government officials. And as, as you know, of course, the two, the Secretary of State and Defense were there last weekend and the Speaker was just there. So I think the Ukrainian government well understands our, our commitment uh, to their cause and we are committed to getting back into Kyiv as soon as we can. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Having been in Poland and, and met with uh, Embassy Kyiv, um, uh, and also, of course, met with them in Kyiv uh, several times, I I know they're eager to get back, uh, to say the least. Um, on this issue of the Global Engagement Center, as you know, um, in last year's testimony, Secretary Blinken, uh, with regard to the budget, gave his commitment that he would follow through on President Zelensky's request to set up a center for combating disinformation in Ukraine in partnership with GEC. He also stated that the appointment of a special coordinator, which is the leader of the, uh, of the Global Engagement Center, uh, would happen quickly and was being reviewed. Um, I'm concerned about two things. One is the fact that we still don't have a leader of the Global Engagement Center at a time when there's more disinformation than ever, particularly related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and second, that the funding request this year only asked for a $5 million increase. Uh, given the disinformation climate that we face today, that seems to me to be inadequate. Can you give us an update first on the efforts of the Global Engagement Center in Ukraine? Are we coordinating with them as they had requested? And then second, um, why have we still not appointed a special coordinator for the Global Engagement Center uh, two years into the administration? Well, it hasn't been quite two years, but it feels like it some days. Um, I believe we have somebody identified and is, is, is in vetting at the minute. The acting coordinator, Leah Bray, is a very capable, retired uh, military officer who I worked with in my last government job at the Department of Defense. Uh, we are engaged across the board in exposing dis disinformation by the Kremlin and coordinating with not just Ukraine, but other partner governments in the region. So you're not going to answer my question as to why we don't have a lead for the office yet and what the timing is on getting someone. This is not a position that has to go through our confirmation process. This is a matter of you all identifying somebody and putting someone in place as, as, as the leader. I, I like Leah Bray also, but you know, she's, she's not the, she's not the lead. She's in an acting role. So what's your, what's your answer to that? Uh, Senator, it, the personnel process, even for those that don't go through the Senate, takes uh, 
a long time sometimes. I'm not trying to dodge the question. I believe we have someone identified for the position and that person is in vetting. I don't know the timing, but I'll, I'll check on it when I get back and let your office know. Great. I'd love to get a commitment from you today that you will move on that. Um, again, it seems to me that's uh, that's the least we should be doing in terms of pushing back on this disinformation uh, that, that is, as you indicate, an, an increasing problem. How about the budget? Uh, do you believe that the $5 million increase is adequate given the uh, disinformation environment we face today? I do. Uh, the the uh, GEC is undertaking one, one aspect of their work, which they're trying to normalize their workforce. They have a lot of contractors, and we're trying to convert a number of them to full-time equivalents. And the, the resources they have now, I think, uh, meet the moment, but we'll take another look at it uh, as we begin the work on the 24 budget, which we've already started conversations on. Yeah, I would just say that the obvious, uh, Mr. Deputy Secretary, which is that other countries are spending billions, we're spending tens of millions, uh, and uh, it seems to me this ought to be a huge priority. I noticed that the Department of Homeland Security is now setting up their own disinformation uh, board of sorts. Um, I think a lot of what they're talking about doing, the GEC should be doing, the Global Engagement Center. And if the State Department's not doing it, apparently other agencies are willing to step up and, and, and be, be more engaged. So I think it's in everybody's interest, including the State Department, to really focus on this effort because it is the, unfortunately, it's the 21st century way that Russia and other countries, including China, uh, Iran, North Korea, are, are partly waging you know, their, their conflicts. Um, with regard to uniting for Ukraine, last week you announced a new program uh, that I'm, I'm happy to see us move forward on. Um, it's, the notion is to streamline this process for Ukrainian citizens who have been displaced. Um, I have heard personally from so many Ohioans who told me, hey, I'm willing to help. I want to open my home. Uh, more than 500 people have called or emailed our office, by the way, a number of businesses that expressed interest in offering jobs. So there is a big demand out there. I think uh, Ohio alone could take a substantial number of these uh, uh, humanitarian parolees. Um, how long do you envision this application process taking? Is this a matter of weeks uh, or a matter of months? Could you tell us a little more about how this is going to work? So, so this will be the final question for Senator Portman. It's a minute 40 over, so please. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I don't have a clock. That's quite all right. You can answer the question. Senator, I think it will be weeks. To, the Department of Homeland Security is in the lead on this, although the State Department is helping to facilitate. I was on an interagency call this morning where the Deputy Secretary at Homeland Security said we've had about 10,000 people apply already. A lot of this, uh, the application process can be done electronically, so I, I do think it will be a matter of weeks. Great. Thank you. Thank you for your indulgence, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Deputy Secretary, for your service. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Deputy Secretary. Good to see you again. Um, just, I, I mentioned this at Secretary Blinken's hearing last week. This is really for my colleagues. If you haven't had a chance to see this Foreign Affairs Security Training Center facility at Fort Pickett, uh, in Virginia. I would really encourage you to go. I took a visit during the recess. State Department colleagues uh, were with me. This came through this committee back in 2014-15, and it is truly impressive. I took some staff there on a Friday, 41 weeks a year. They, want, they run week-long programs for FSOs and their family members to get security training, and Friday is the day of the exercise where they have to put all the security training to 
good purpose. It's in an it's in a, a mock-up of a town square with an embassy compound. It involves an attack on an embassy that is frightening, even though I was told what was going to happen and knew what was going to happen. Um, it was very, very intense, but, but looking at the care that has been devoted to developing this security program, in addition to the fact that, that that's the one week-long program for all FSOs, there's also, if you want to be in the security side of state, you do 11 weeks there in your first year, 17 weeks there in your second year, and another 11 weeks in your third year before you do an overseas deployment. And I just want to applaud the State Department for this really comprehensive security training. Sadly, we need it in ways we didn't in the past, but yeah, what you. I saw firsthand, it, it would be hard to describe. I just hope some of my colleagues might have a chance to see it. Yeah, thank you for going, Senator. I was there on a Friday as well last fall, and it is quite realistic, the training. And just to amplify that point, I've heard two anecdotes in the last few months of yeah. officers who have been in a circumstance overseas where they said, my training at FASC made a difference. One was in Oman where a contractor assigned to the embassy was, was stabbed in the lungs and the officer jumped in. He was a neighbor and did whatever medical procedure, emergency medical procedure that he learned at FASC and he said it came back from that training and probably in the medical unit said it probably saved that person's life. So it is, we, we appreciate the support that you have but also the Congress for this facility. It is really state of the art and I understand we took you out on the fast driving track and glad you survived. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a very calm driver, and as long as he wasn't sweating, I wasn't sweating. Um, let me ask you this. In the security space, update us on the administration's effort to determine the cause of Havana syndrome. So this is a continuing effort on the part of the intelligence community and across the interagency. Uh, earlier, or last fall and earlier this year, we had two panels, uh, one that the Director of National Intelligence uh, commissioned and one that uh, our Diplomatic Security Bureau commissioned of the Jason, which is academic experts. Some of the Jason report is unclassified, so that's out there for you to read, but there's a classified portion and the DNI issued an unclassified summary. And what both of them found roughly is a number of these cases can be explained by en environmental and health factors, but there's still a percentage of them for which we don't have an explanation, and we're still, we have not identified uh, or attributed this to a particular actor. It's, it's still a frustrating uh, head scratcher that we haven't been able to figure that out. And, and frustrating is a good word because a number of State Department personnel have expressed frustration about what they maintain are actions by the department leadership to either deny them or family members affected by this access to proper medical care. Talk a little bit about what you're trying to do within state to make sure that our State Department members and their families get access to medical care for this condition. So at post, if somebody reports an incident, they're supposed to both report it to the Diplomatic Security Bureau official at post and to the medical unit. And in both cases, they go through a questionnaire to try to get a common set of data. If their symptoms are sufficient that warrant uh, medevac back to Washington, that will be authorized. And then people who need uh, care quickly uh, at a higher level, we've set up a contract with Johns Hopkins uh, University Hospital in Baltimore uh, to get uh, holistic care, if you will, for officers. But, and we're also getting some officers into the program at Walter Reed, if, if that's uh, warranted. One last quick question. In February 21, the department rolled out a new payroll system. There were a number of glitches with that that has delayed 
uh, people getting paid. I understand Secretary Blinken has indicated that in instances where pay was long delayed, the State Department will commit to paying interest on those. Just give us a, an update on how is the system now fixed and are you taking steps to remedy situations that uh, were caused by people not getting paid on time? Unfortunately, the system is not fixed yet. This software was implemented. Its implementation was planned by the last team, but it was put in place in March of last year. And in shorthand, I think we were a little too ambitious with this software uh, doing everything at once, and it's had a lot of errors. Secretary just sent out a workforce message apologizing to the workforce and committing to uh, where we owe people uh, to pay interest. And we've we've, uh, engaged some professionals, including a former CIO of the department, to help us figure this out. It's at our center down in Charleston and try to work through the glitches. We've also set up an online-based portal for people to report their challenges because we had a not very efficient system for that. Let's try to approve the response time to help people get the compensation they are owed. Thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Thank you for being here, uh, Secretary. Freedom House says that global internet freedom has declined for the 11th consecutive year. So I was pleased to see the State Department announce its declaration for the future of the internet uh, this past week. Um, U.S. government efforts on internet access and protecting journalists and civil society from undemocratic restrictions exist in several places with overlapping functions and resources. Um, Russia's war in Ukraine puts further pressure on our Resources. The chairman has introduced the Info Act, which would authorize funding for state um, aid and um, and the U.S. Agency for Global Media to further advance the important work that we're already doing. Um, but beyond funding, um, are there organizational or operational changes that you're planning across the department to kind of consolidate all of these efforts and make sure that one part of the department, one part of the government, knows what the other side is doing? Senator, within the department, we recently established a new bureau on cyberspace and digital policy. So part of their mandate is focused on digital freedom. The Democracy and Human Rights Bureau also works on this issue, and we've given them some additional resources uh, to work in this space. So um, what I worry about is scale. Um, I've been, been in this space for you know a couple of years now, and lots of very important individual efforts uh, are ongoing, but This problem is global, and so I want you to pay particular attention to when we find a model that works, when we are working with a country and and reversing this trend, that it's sort of, you know, not in the literal sense, but it's sort of hand-to-hand combat, right? It's our country working with our counterparts and trying to increase uh, global internet freedom with that country. My question is scale. Is there someone in charge of figuring out what works and scaling it across the planet, which is sort of in my view, the State Department's job? Well, in the Bureau I mentioned, and also the USAGM and some of its grantees, they have a fund, um, I forget what the name of it is, but an open technology that helps with um, people overcoming restrictions on the internet in a particular country. Um, I mean, this is part and parcel of the broader democratic recession, if you will, where autocrats are using the internet for uh, not good outcomes. And so it's, it's, it's not a standalone policy. It's a part of our broader work on democracy and human rights. So today is Global uh, World Press uh, Freedom Day. Um, 
What do you think about adding press freedom training to foreign service officers? I'll have to take that back and think about it, to be honest. Uh, I don't know if it's part of our training uh, for human rights officers. Probably is. Um, I confess I don't know for certain about that. Um, Secretary is marking this day today by going to the Foreign Press Center, which has not had an in-person briefing for two years. Uh, so we're certainly, as a department, giving, giving lift to the brave work of journalists around the world. Yeah, I just want it to be part of the curriculum. I want it to be part of where the rubber hits the road, which is, as you know, in the Foreign Service. Uh, uh, finally, um, in response to my questioning last week, uh, Secretary Blinken um, said that uh, resor additional resources may be needed for uh, negotiations for the Compact of Free Association. Um, how are you ensuring that the department is organized to prioritize and successfully conclude the negotiations, um, given that Ambassador Yoon will need resources and political will, not just throughout your department, but through uh, interior and, and defense. So broadly, we're focused on this issue, not just what Ambassador Yun is doing on the, on the compacts, but on the challenge in the Pacific Islands, because the Chinese are obviously making a big play there. When Secretary Kerry and Assistant Secretary Medina were out in Palau recently for the Our Oceans Conference, they heard this in stereo sound that uh, we needed to up our game on resources. So we're taking a hard look at both how we can adequately fund the compacts, but also the uh, the tuna treaty that we have with s several countries in the South Pacific and more broadly our resources uh, for diplomacy in the region. We're going to be planning to open a new post in the Solomon Islands. Uh, so two uh, questions that I hope will be uh, a quick yes. Uh, first, I assume you will get uh, back to this committee on resources required. That's number one. Yes. Uh, and secondly, um, one of the things that I've heard is that although the Department of Defense looms large and in a positive way as it relates to the Compact of Free Association, they are understandably not the tip of the spear as it relates to the, the, the sort of negotiations themselves. Um, I'd like to see a DOD representative in all the meetings. It doesn't necessarily have to be at the, the secretary level, but someone to convey that this is a whole of government effort with state interior and defense. And I, I'm wondering if you can talk to your counterparts to make sure we have DOD in the room um, and I've heard a, a little bit of chatter that they're not quite in the room, that they're waiting to see how this resolves and support it at the end. I think we need them to convey that the entire U.S. government is behind the renegotiation. I will check on that. I was not aware they were not in the room, and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. McCann, welcome. Good morning. I want to ask you about the State Department's ongoing efforts to finalize a nuclear deal with Iran. Last week in this committee, I discussed the IRGC terrorism sanctions with Secretary Blinken. And he said that dismantling some sanctions would be worth it because the deal has benefits that will meaningfully roll back Iran's nuclear program. I want to ask you about those benefits because I don't think that's true, and I don't think you do either. Since President Biden was elected, Iran has made enormous unprecedented progress on its nuclear program, including enri enriching uranium to 60%, deploying advanced centrifuges, and acquiring significant knowledge. Now, the Biden administration has a secret assessment that says there is a point after which the nuclear progress would make the deal 
meaningless. Secretary Blinken has referenced that point in public numerous times since last year. But you have never revealed to this committee what that point is publicly. Administration officials have told this committee in classified briefings what your assessment is. But again, it has been kept from the public. This weekend, Chairman Menendez said, quote, We are told by the administration that if the negotiations didn't conclude by the end of February, that in fact, the time that would be lost and what we would gain would be of very little importance or value to us. Now it's the end of April. So if the end of February wasn't going to buy us what we need, certainly the end of April is not there. That is entirely consistent with everything I have heard and seen. So my question is, does the State Department intend to make your internal assessment public? Senator Cruz, I think that's probably an assessment of the Intelligence Committee that's classified. So my answer to you right now without knowing more would be not in the near term, but this is not a topic I work on. Uh, so I'll have to take that question back. So if the State Department has an assessment that says the deal's benefits became meaningless months ago, why is the State Department still negotiating? Senator, as I said, I don't work on this issue. Literally, I'm not in any briefings. I'm not up to speed on what's happening. I don't have a different answer than the Secretary would have given you last week. Well, I think the State Department needs to come clean with the American people about an assessment that impacts the safety and security of every American and the safety and security of our allies. Let's turn to a different topic. I want to ask you about the new so-called Disinformation Governance Board that the Biden administration recently announced. The board is an interagency team assembled under the Department of Homeland Security allegedly to combat disinformation. And it shows every sign of potentially becoming an Orwellian tool to target Americans whom Democrats consider to be their political opponents. In defense of the board, Biden administrations have rushed out to say, no, 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 you don't understand. The board is not going to target Americans. It's about targeting foreign disinformation. I got to say, I was surprised to hear that, and I expect many members of this committee were equally surprised. And that's because the U.S. government already has an interagency organization built to counter foreign disinformation. It's the Global Engagement Center at the Department of State. Its mission is, quote, to direct, lead, synchronize, integrate, and coordinate efforts of the federal government to recognize, understand, expose, and counter foreign state and non-state propaganda and disinformation. The GEC was created and has been consistently supported by bipartisan legislation that has come out of this committee. Last year, Senators Portman and Murphy filed a new authorization for $150 million for the GEC again to, quote, counter foreign state and non-state sponsored propaganda and disinformation. It would seem that either the Biden administration has created a completely redundant organization to target foreign disinformation, duplicating and undermining this committee's work over years, or they're not being honest about what the new board is designed to do and that it's actually designed to target Americans. And so I want to ask you, how do you understand the GEC's mission to differ from the new disinformation board and what activities currently being conducted by the GEC would state contemplate ceding 
to this newly created board. The GEC senator is outward facing, uh, engaged in exposing to foreign publics the disinformation that we see our adversaries uh, putting out there, whether it's the Russian or Chinese or some other entity. I'm not familiar with this new DHS entity. I just saw a headline in the paper this morning. I had not heard of it. So I don't know how the it would The state differ. was not conduct, conducted, uh, consulted, even though ostensibly what this new agency does is something already assigned to state, and there's already uh, an effort stood up to do this? I don't know if our, the folks at the GEC or in our public diplomacy, public affairs office were consulted. I'll have to find but out. But you were not back consulted. I was not. No. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Deputy Secretary. Great to see you. Uh, and I want to associate myself with the comments the chairman made in his opening remarks um, about uh, your efforts uh, to make sure that the State Department uh, reflects uh, the great diversity of talent uh, in the country and appreciate the efforts uh, you're making in that regard. And associate myself with the remarks of the, the ranking member and the comment that you made distinguishing risk awareness, which we want to be very focused on, uh, but uh, contrasting that with uh, risk adversity, um, because I do think it's important. Uh, that our State Department officers um, get out and about uh, to the extent that um, they, they, they can do so without putting themselves at great risk. Um, the issues we cover in this hearing are, are not the ones that make headlines, but they are fundamental to the success uh, and implementation of our foreign policy. And I, I want to start by asking you about implementation of the Foreign Service Families Act. I asked Secretary Blinken about this when uh, he was here. And again, I want to thank the chairman and the ranking member for working with Senator Sullivan and I to pass this, which uh, we think is essential to continuing to attract and retain uh, top-notch uh, talent. But passing the bill was just the beginning. There are lots of pieces to implementation. And I just want your commitment uh, to work with us to try to expedite uh, a lot of the details we need to put in place to make it real. Uh, you have that commitment, Senator. Thank you for your work on it. I remember we discussed it in my confirmation hearing back in March of last year. Thank you. And if there's somebody in addition to yourself, and I appreciate your being available on your team, who should we, we should be in contact with, uh, who would that be? I think most of the provisions, if I remember from reading it, uh, fall in, in the, uh, on the workforce. So it would be the Director General of the Foreign Service, Ambassador Perez. Thank you. So I have a couple questions regarding the, uh, the, P, the, the priority two um, system that we uh, established uh, for Afghan refugees uh, back in August uh, 2021. Uh, there seems to be an awful lot of confusion uh, about the current status of this uh, program, and we're contacted uh, daily uh, by NGOs who have staff members uh, who they believe and, and we believe, looking at the facts, would be eligible for the P2 um, applications. Uh, can you give me a sense of how many P-2 applicants have arrived in the United States? I don't know that number, but it's not a, it's not a large number because in order to be processed as refugees, they have to get out of Afghanistan in the first instance. I, I understand that, and I, I, we've been working hard to communicate that fact. Uh, but uh, there are also a number of people who have gotten out of Afghanistan and did so with the expectation that they would then qualify. And so they're sitting now in third countries. Um, let me just read to you uh, a reply that we received from the uh, 
Department of State's Afghanistan task force uh, when we inquired about some of these P2 applicants. Quote, we are unable to provide status updates for individuals referred to for P1 or P2 access to the United States refugee um, admission uh, program at this time. Eligible referrals will be processed and individuals who have been referred will receive notification by email once updated information or instructions are available. And it's been radio silence. How recently was that response? This was sent some, I, I'll get you the exact date, uh, but I would just ask again. For I think your, we can do better than that. Yeah, so if I can, appreciate We can follow up with your staff on the cases. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, at the very least, what I want to, I want to do is let these individuals know um, whether they have a chance, right? Because right now you've got a lot of uh, expectations and where people are just not getting information. So I appreciate that. We'll, we'll follow up with you. Uh, finally, security clearances. Um, this is driving me crazy. Uh, I just had an example of somebody who'd been on my staff uh, who was accepted for a position uh, dealing with arms control um, at the State Department. Uh, the security clearance process took 10 months um, at a time when the people who wanted him really needed his, his expertise and, and talents, given everything that's going on in the world right now. I, I, this is a longer conversation, but I, I would, this is a broken area. It's one of the areas that doesn't get a lot of attention. Can you speak to how long it takes on average for somebody at the State Department to get a security clearance? I don't know the average number. I know the pain point you described of taking too long in the case of officers. We, we sometimes lose aspirants for the Foreign Service because it takes too long. We've had a working group underway for a couple of years trying to speed up the process, and there's a broader governmental effort uh, for the last several years to try to speed up the process. I can report some good news. We've started to use some automation tools, bots, to speed up some parts of the process. For example, it used to be the case if you were transferring from one civil service position to another, for reasons nobody can explain, it would take six weeks to transfer the clearance. We can now do that in one day because of this automation. So we're working to fix it. I hear I do town halls virtually with posts around the world. The number one question all the time is eligible family employment, which part of your bill, and related to that is clearance for eligible family members seeking employment. Thank you. I, I do look forward, and we'll be following up with you and your team on this. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Good to uh, see you. Thank you for being here today. Um, first, let me just associate myself with the, uh, some of the remarks I heard from the ranking member. I want to thank uh, Senator Rich and Senator Menendez for um, working with this committee to reform the accountability review board process. Um, and I just look forward to continuing to work with you to make sure that the department can shift its approach to risk to make sure that we can get our diplomatic staff um, uh, out into high threat environments to expand our footprint, absolutely essential. I know it's uh, integral to our conversation about reopening in Kyiv, but it's also really important when it comes to a lot of uh, other dangerous places where State Department personnel need to be out on the front lines. Second, um, I do think Senator Cruz fundamentally misunderstands what the Global Engagement Center is um, and how the mission of it is fundamentally different than the mission of the Department of Homeland Security. The mission of the Department of Homeland Security is to protect the homeland, to protect the United States from misinformation and propaganda attacks from foreign actors. The mission of the Global Engagement Center um, is to work with partner countries around the world to protect them and their citizens from those misinformation attacks. So 
In fact, the Global Engagement Center you know, makes no grants to U.S. nonprofits or institutions. The Global Engagement Center, um, which Senator Portman and I have championed, makes grants to um, foreign media sources, fact checkers, watchdogs to try to combat Russian and Chinese misinformation outside of the United States. So they're fundamentally different um, uh, missions. I, I'm not sure that there's any contention that one would steal from uh, from the others. Um, two questions for you, Mr. McKean, if I can. Um, one is just to follow up on a question I asked you, uh, perhaps at your confirmation hearing, uh, on the issue of, of subnational diplomacy. And I just want to keep on hammering this home. Um, here's an example of how other countries approach empowering city and state local actors to engage in diplomacy. The city of Shanghai has 100 staff dedicated to building diplomatic relationships around the world simply for the city of Shanghai. The United States has no office at a federal level, at the State Department level, dedicated to the same mission. In China, there's a 100-person office in one city dedicated to this. Um, and so I know that you said um, earlier that this was you know, something of great interest to the secretary. I, I would look forward to any update you have on efforts to establish, reestablish a office of subnational city and state diplomacy at the Department of State. We've got legislation that would do that pending before this committee. Um, any updates on, on efforts to, to raise the profile of our local and state actors in diplomatic efforts around the world. Uh, Senator, it's still our intention to set up an office within the department to deal with this issue, and I believe we've identified the person to lead it. Um, I don't know the timing. It's been hanging for a little bit, uh, but I know we have positions identified and, and where it would be lodged, so I will, I will come back to you uh, in the next couple of weeks to give you an update. Yeah, I, I just think we're leaving a lot of talent on the playing field when we, when we don't sort of purposefully organize um, our, our local elected officials, Republicans and Democrats, to represent the United States around the world. Um, and then lastly, to back up a little bit from Senator Van Hollen's question, um, this year's budget request includes a, a 50% increase for the U.S. refugee admissions program. You set this very ambitious target for admissions from Ukraine. Um, we haven't seen that flow really start. And, you know, my understanding is because there's a lot of work to do to, you know, rebuild uh, USRAP from a lot of the damage that was done by the last administration. Can you just, in, you know, a minute, talk about why this budget request is so essential to be able to build back up the capacity so that we can specifically target that 100,000 number for Ukrainian admissions? So just on the Ukrainian target of 100,000 that the president has set, I think a lot of those will end up being people coming through the United for Ukraine program that DHS has announced. They'll come in on temporary parole authority. There are some refugees through the Lautenberg program that we're trying to accelerate, and some people will just come through normal visas, family reunification, immigrant visas. On the broader refugee admissions program, we have a lot of rebuilding to do because it was the program was decimated by the previous administration, the backbone, the local resettlement agencies, a lot of them went out of business. And we've been hampered in the last year plus with COVID. It's still a restriction overseas um, in processing refugees. And our partner, USCIS, also needs to rebuild its workforce that 
they do the interviews overseas for people coming through the refugee program. The president's given us a very ambitious target. We're not going to hit it this year, but we've got to make progress uh, so that we can hit it in the next couple of years. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Deputy Secretary, just a couple follow-ups. Uh, the department's request for implementing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility as required by several executive orders is 65.6 million. Can you uh, give us an insight as to what specifically that funding will be used for? I think our, the number that I'm tracking is actually a little bigger than that, Senator, with $73 million okay. in the FY23 budget. Uh, it, it would be a range of things. Uh, the Office of Amber, uh, Ambassador Abercrombie Wynn Stanley, for one, getting resources to do some um, data analysis and surveys, uh, some additional money for Foreign Service Institute for training, uh, additional resources for our Human Resources Bureau. And in the strategic plan that we discussed earlier, there are a lot of specific projects and targets that uh, the plan sets out and would need some funding to implement uh, those programs. And then uh, given that racial equity became a priority of the department as a result of the executive order this past year following global, global racial justice efforts, uh, we will be receiving a budget, will we be receiving a budget request for dedicated funding to address global racial equity? The 2023 budget request provides $2.6 to advance gender equity and equality, how, if at all, will the racial and gender equity goals be coordinated? So the executive order you speak of, the president issued on his first day in office, and then all departments were asked to put together uh, plans to implement it, which we just released ours, and uh, an officer on my team led a cross-department effort to develop this plan. And it's really designed to embed in our, in our programs in both public diplomacy, foreign assistance, our overall diplomatic engagement, more outreach to underserved and marginalized communities overseas. There is money integrated in the foreign assistance budget, about $40 million to advance these principles. The gender equity piece that you referenced, some of that is not new money, but it's attribution exercises, looking at existing programs and shifting some of the focus to make sure that it has a gender equity component. And I think over time we'll be, we'll be doing more of that on the racial equity side. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, as, as I've said, this is a great importance to us. And, you know, we believe in uh, leading by example. So I want you to know that as the department uh, hired a chief diversity officer as the chairman, I've hired a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. First time the committee has ever had one, Amisha Thompson, who is here with us today. So I look forward with her working with the department at the end of the day to achieve some mutual goals that we can make a real uh, ground-breaking uh, breakthroughs on, on some things that have been lasting for, for so long. Um, as part of your March 3rd confirmation process, uh, you responded to questions that the Bureau of African Affairs is chronically understaffed, both in terms of positions and vacancies, and you committed to me to work with the Bureau of African Affairs to ensure it has the resources, including personnel, necessary to meet the Bureau's objectives. It's been 14 months since that hearing. Can you give me a sense, have you undertaken a review of the Africa Bureau's resources, including personnel? Uh, what did your review reveal and what actions are we taking? As part of both the 22 and the 23 budgets, and as you know, we've talked about this, we've asked for hundreds of additional positions, both in the foreign and civil service. 
And I want to say the Africa Bureau is, is second in line for behind the East Asia Bureau in getting new positions. But let me confirm that for you um, off the top of my head. That's my recollection. Uh, what we, the challenge we have a lot of times in Africa Post, and I've heard this from both the current assistant secretary and, and the previous acting assistant secretary, is getting people to bid, even though the positions may be there at a, at a post, a hardship post. It's finding people to bid uh, and to do a tour like that. The school may not be particularly good if they have kids in, in uh, school-aged children. So the human, re the Bureau of Global Talent Management is working with the Africa Bureau to look at additional incentives to try to encourage people to serve at Africa Post, and we can get you an update on on that work. Yeah, if you'd do that, I'd appreciate it. Lastly, um, there was some discussion here on uh, refugees. The Migration and Refugee Assistance Account funds assistance programs to protect vulnerable people around the world, including refugees, conflict victims, internally displaced people, stateless persons, vulnerable migrants. The fiscal year 22 request included $550 million for refugee admissions and resettlement efforts that would be used to rebuild the refugee resettlement infrastructure within the U.S. and admit up to 125,000 refugees in fiscal year 22. I think you just said we're not on track to meet that goal, as I understand it. Uh, but where are we at in this regard? Do we have allocations on the number of refugees uh, we plan to admit from different geographic areas? Uh, where is the rebuilding process now? On the geographic allocation, that would have been done last September before the start of the fiscal year announced by uh, the president or the secretary. So we can get you those numbers. I don't have them at hand. As I was saying uh, previously uh, with Senator Murphy, the rebuilding has to happen in a few places. One, internally in the, in the Population Refugees Migration Bureau, they have staffed up the admissions office, but I think we're probably going to be looking for more officers to, or more positions to assign to them. Second, the local network of resettlement agencies around the country, a lot of them went out of business uh, because of lack of funding in the last administration. So we've, we've got to rebuild that infrastructure. We've done some of that through the Afghan evacuees that we processed and resettled last year, but we've also undertaken to forward fund uh, some money to the resettlement agencies to help them rebuild. And then overseas, we do the work, but also USCIS goes out and does so-called circuit rides to interview refugee applicants. And USCIS has uh, a number of personnel shortfalls that they're, they're trying to fill so that we can rebuild. Senator Young. Mr. Deputy Secretary, welcome to the committee. We've seen dramatic disruptions in consular services over the past several years. First, COVID upended the entire model of fee-based funding as global travel dramatically declined. Second, tens of thousands of Afghan translators and allies were left stranded after the administration's bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan, and now there are new pressures from the massive crisis in Ukraine. How does the department plan to make consular services more resilient to global disruptions? Well, Senator, you're right that the fee-funded foundation that we have for our programs undermined our consular services during the pandemic. Uh, but And Congress has helped us in the last couple of years with direct appropriations to fill some of the gaps. Uh, 
I think we're in a better place financially now because travel is picking up. So the passport and, and visa fees, the income is coming in. And Congress also in the in the 22 appropriations bill allowed us to keep some more of the of fees that were previously remitted to the Treasury. So I think in terms of our financial base, we're in a good position. We still need to rebuild at post. And we have a new Assistant Secretary, Rena Bitter, who's focused intensely on this. I know we've had a conversation believe with your office about visas for nurses and so she's she's gone around to some of our biggest visa issuing posts to make sure they're well postured to deal with what you described very good I uh, hope you'll keep keep uh, this committee uh, my own office you know updated if, if uh, the projections are, are are off what just incidentally what are uh, the contingency plans if, if the fees don't increase as much as the department's projecting well, right now we we have a good base, and we see that travel is picking up around the around the world. Or the demand for passports is up because uh, we head into summer travel season, and certainly we've got a lot of uh, visa applications that are backlogged. So, I, at the moment, I don't think we have a a concern that the revenues are going to f- fall significantly again. Uh, we may have to come back to Congress to help for ask for a little more help, but I don't anticipate that we will. As you and I have discussed previously, uh, I remain gravely concerned by the delays we've seen in issuing visas for uh, the nurses, uh, which you were kind enough to mention, uh, and and other travelers providing life-saving services here in the U.S. As embassies reopen following uh, uh, the pandemic. Uh, how is the department prioritizing among the many competing demands for consular services? Well, and the biggest, uh, the posts that issue the most visas for nurses, which off the top of my head are Manila, uh, Kingston, Jamaica, and forget the third one. I think it's in Nigeria or Kenya. Um, we have prioritized these visas for nurses coming to the United States, obviously filling a critical gap, particularly in in rural hospitals. <clears throat> We've given post flexibility to make decisions about how to prioritize certain issues. For During the pandemic, the priority was really just American citizen services and immigrant visas. But we recognize, depending on the post, uh, there are other priorities that we need to fill, whether it's student visas, um, visas for uh, shipping crews. There's a range of priorities that we're hearing from industry about that we're, we're trying to be very responsive to. Is there, is there a list of prioritized um, categories? Well, each post would have their own prioritization. I mean, we have given guidance from Washington, but we also want to allow them the flexibility to manage their workload. But as I said, it, in a post, for example, that has a high demand uh, for nurses' visas, those are one of the top priorities. The National Visa Center has almost a, a half million cases that are documentarily complete, yet only 32,000 were scheduled for interviews this month. What resources does the department need to reduce this massive backlog? Are those immigrant visas, Senator, that you're referring to? I'm not sure I'm tracking this particular aspect of this. Yes, they are. I'll have to get back to you with a more uh, thorough response. My instinct, uh, the answer to that question is simply bandwidth within a visa post. There are still, where COVID is still 
a challenge. There would be constraints in the in the waiting room. How many people can be there under local conditions at any one time? And you know, we have fewer consular positions because of the funding challenges we had in the last couple of years. We're trying to rebuild the workforce and get more positions assigned out. But let me get consular affairs to come back sure. with a more thorough answer. Well, in, in, in light of uh, the critical visa categories that uh, we need to run through here and, and, and the ongoing pandemic, uh, I think a number of us would be you know, ready to offer some surge capacity if, if presented a plan. So. Yeah, and, some, and some of the things, one of the things we've done, Senator, with some non-immigrant visas is get authority working with DHS to waive the interview requirement for certain categories of applicants so that eases the burden on some posts. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Deputy Secretary, I've been around here long enough to know that uh, gratitude and thank yous are few and far between. Uh, so let me just say I want to thank you and Assistant Secretary Bitter in particular uh, for the hard work that you've helped in my office, I know others as well, in terms of some challenging consular affairs cases. I know you understand how important that work is, and I appreciate the notable change uh, in the department's attitude and engagement in this regard. So, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the- thank, thank you for saying it, Senator. Assistant Secretary Bitter is one of our best. I make it a point when I travel domestically to go to our passport offices, and I went to the National Visa Center and National Passport Center, which is in New Hampshire a couple of months ago, and we've, customer service is their, is their mantra. This is what they do, and they're very committed to it. Yeah, yeah. whenever I travel abroad, I always ask to see the the chief counselor officer, because they, they do an incredibly important work. Um, so with the appreciation, I'm a senator, with the appreciation of the committee for your appearance and thoughtful answers, and for the work we're doing together on State Department uh, reauthorization, this uh, record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.